Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Voice of Neuro Philosophy Clock with Eche Fatoum. This time we're going to be discussing Hobbes and the Leviathan. Is it the Zerg unit that is very massive and deals a ton of damage and is super expensive, taking over the whole world? We're about to find out. How are you doing, Mr. Eche Fatoum? Doing good. How about yourself? I'm bouncing back from two really tough weeks. So it was one of those challenges that you face that has a lot of uh, leadership building exercises, moves that you have to make because it ultimately falls to you to make a decision and it's going to be tough either way. So those kind of things, I don't think there's a way for you to make it through those and not feel gross, even if you did what's technically the right thing. So that has weighed on me quite a bit. And one of the things that I've been sobered by over the course of these years as the stream has taken off is the heavy responsibility of leading a community. As people are involved and they're invested with their time and their energy and their thoughts in what you're doing, uh, you're responsible for how their experience is to a pretty great extent. So I had some battles to fight. I had a lot of people who supported me and I think I learned a lot through the process. So I'm feeling like I have some firm footing underneath me now. The big takeaway from it was getting the Code of Neuro written up, which was a, a response to a question I posed to myself throughout this storm, which was, what is my mission and purpose? And if I could give people 10 recommendations, kind of like the Ten Commandments, what would those be? And I took some time to get a rough draft and then got feedback from some other people who were awake at that hour and uh, ended up getting some pretty valuable fruit from something that was difficult. Yeah. So I hear that there's been some adjustment to the social contract within the NeuroStream. So that's mm -hmm. pretty much on topic for what we will be talking about tonight. Nice. I like when stuff is on topic and relevant. Yeah, so last time we talked about, or we had two episodes where we talked about the Protestant Reformation, which is a big event that set up a chain of events that would transform Europe over the course of many years. Today we're going to be talking about Thomas Hobbes, one of the first and most important political thinkers that arose after the Reformation. And Hobbes lived during pretty weird times. And in order to give you a sense of how weird those times were and how the events of the time informed his thinking, I made a shortish video kind of giving you the whole timeline of what was happening during his time, especially in England. Sweet. So we can jump into that video. You did send that to me. You sent me a Dropbox link, so I will be showing that on the stream. I'm not sure how the audio gets pulled into it, but we'll see what happens with it. Very nice HD stuff. So to preface this, you do filmmaking at a professional level too. So when I saw the clip and opened it, I was like, damn, that is a nice camera. That is your profession. You're not just blowing a bunch of money on a nice camera. <laughs> well, a bit of both. A little bit of both. I'm of the RPG mindset where I think that getting better gear will make the end product better. So every time I have a chance to upgrade the gear, I'll, I'll be going for that. 
maybe not the best mindset. Well, I have it pulled up here. Audio should be good. And let's dive into it. It's about 16 minutes. Um, if you have any questions or want to go a bit deeper onto any subject, just press pause and we can talk about it. Sweet. And we do have I'm a... Sorry. You're what? I'm hearing feedback. Like I'm hearing myself on the headphones for some reason. Okay. That may be that I'm a little bit too loud in your ears or you're a little bit too loud in mine for the balance. I think the viewers were saying that we're about even if I'm further back to, I think it echoes less. I have those open back headphones, which are very fancy, but they do catch more of the sounds of what I'm hearing in the microphone. So will I be hearing the video on my headphones through Sancaster or should I open the stream in order to know where we're at? You should open the stream. Starting the video in three, two, one. Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to this lecture on the life of Thomas Hobbes. We'll be talking about the context of his life and his thinking. And in order to do that, we'll be looking at four different threads. We'll be looking at the line of succession of the English royalty. We'll be looking at political development in the UK. We'll also be looking at different thinkers that lived before or during Hobbes' lifetime, as well as looking at what he was doing during his life. We start our journey in the year 1215. King John of England produced a very important document in English legislature. It's the Magna Carta. It establishes rights for the common people, as well as prohibiting the king from raising taxes without the consent of his council which would later to become the parliament. In the year 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 pieces to the church door in Wittenberg. This would set up the chain of event we now know as the Protestant Reformation, a very tumultuous time with a lot of war, infighting, and big social and political changes. During this time, King Henry VIII was King of England. He is known, among other things, for his many wives, six of them to be exact. When he tried to divorce his first wife, he had a fallout with the Pope at the time, which led to the Reformation in England. Henry was also known for the many changes he did to the English Constitution. He established what is called the Divine Right of Kings, giving himself both earthly and godly power to reign over England as well as establishing him as the supreme leader of the Church of England. After the death of Henry VIII in the year 1547, his son Edward VI became King of England. There was a lot of social and political instability during his reign, which led to a riot and eventually a rebellion. Edward fell ill and died at the age of 15, reigning for only six years. After Edward's death, his half-sister Mary became the Queen of England, even though Edward tried to remove her from the succession line. He feared that she would try to undo the Reformation effort by his father. And that was just what she did. Even though she was hindered by Parliament, she managed to burn about 300 heretics at the stakes, 
giving her the nickname Bloody Mary. Mary's reign only lasted five years, giving the throne to her half-sister Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth I was known to be a benevolent ruler, and she heavily relied on her council. She established the Protestant Church of England shortly after taking the throne, giving legitimacy to Protestantism in England. Due to this, she lost favor with the Pope at the time, which declared her an illegitimate ruler in the year 1570. In the year 1578, Jean Baudin, a French thinker, published his eight books on the state, in which he talked about absolutism and how the monarchy needs divine and absolute power in order to rule. Because if there's rivaling power structures, they would lead to war and chaos. The sovereign king has to answer to no one but God. There were a lot of ongoing wars during the 16th and 17th century, most of which centered around Protestants versus Catholics. One of which was the Anglo-Spanish War, in which the Spanish crown tried to remove the Queen of England, Elizabeth, from the throne in order to put someone Catholic in her place. The war somewhat culminated in the year 1588, when the Spanish Armada, Il Grande y Felicima Armada, the great and the most fortunate navy, was sailing towards England. The Armada was stopped by the English fleet when they sent five empty fire ships into the Spanish Armada that was anchored near the Netherlands. England would try to do a counteroffensive a year later, but this also was unsuccessful. During this time, in 1588, Thomas Hobbes was born. He was born prematurely when his mother heard about the Spanish Armada. Hobbes later stated that his mother gave birth to twins that day, himself and fear. A couple of years later, in the year 1592, marks the year where William Shakespeare's plays were performed on stage for the first time. His first historical dramas focused on the life of Richard III and Henry VI. They were political historical plays and they had a huge influence on political and social thinking at the time, as well as the huge influence Shakespeare had on English literature and theatre. In the year 1603, Queen Elizabeth died without having produced an heir to the throne. So the line of English succession went from the House Tudor to the House Stuart. The only 13-month-old James became King of England. He was the son of Queen Mary of Ireland and King Henry of Scotland, making him a king over Ireland, Scotland and England, setting the groundworks for what later would become known as the Commonwealth. King James now is mostly known for his sponsorship of the translation of the Bible, giving us what we now know as the King James translation, which he didn't do himself. In the year 1603, when King James was two years old, his council and the parliament settled the feud with the Spanish in the Treaty of London, putting a hold on the ongoing but never declared Anglo-Spanish War. 
Around the same time, in the year 1607, England established its first permanent settlement in the Americas, in Jamestown, Virginia. Most of the people that went over to the Americas were fleeing persecution and religious tensions in Europe. Thomas Hobbes finished his studies in the University of Oxford in the year 1608. After having went to elementary school and having had a private tutor, he went to college in Oxford where he studied physics and scholastic logic. While at university, he was following his own curriculum and got a Bachelor of Art degrees. Thomas Hobbes became tutor to William Cavendish, who would later become the Earl of Devonshire, and he began a lifelong connection with the Cavendish family. The two of them went on a grand tour of Europe, which was customary to rich people during that age. They were traveling different countries and seeing the world for five years. Hobbes was interested in Greek and Latin texts at the time and was translating them into English. The year 1618 marks the beginning of the Thirty Year War. It's a war between the Holy Roman Empire or the Catholic side of things against the anti-Habsburg state, which is to say Protestant nations in Europe. King James I died in the year 1625, giving the throne to his son Charles I. Charles wasn't very fond of the Magna Carta, but rather citing the divine right of kings, established by Henry VIII. His actions would lead to a lot of civil unrest and culminate in a civil war in England. After the grand tour of Europe, Hobbes returned to England in the year 1615. He worked as a tutor as well as a translator. Among others, Hobbes was working for Sir Francis Bacon, his fellow philosopher and friend. Bacon is now best known for his utopian novel New Atlantis, as well as his political thinking he produced during his time as Lord High Chancellor, as well as Attorney General of England and Wales. Bacon lost his public position over accusations of corruption and died in 1626 of pneumonia. Two years later, in the year 1628, William Cavendish died of the plague, relieving Hobbes of his duties for the Cavendish family. After the death of two of his former employees, Hobbes had to go on look for work elsewhere. He found work as a tutor in Paris for the Clifton family. While in France, Hobbes expanded his knowledge and interest in philosophy. He also visited Galileo Galilei that was under house arrest. In the year 1630, Charles I ended his war efforts in the Thirty Year War. He was short on resources due to the many conflicts he was struggling with. The war would go on for another 18 years though, ending with the Peace of Westphalia. The year 1637 marked the year where René Descartes published his Discours de la Méthode, a hugely influential book in philosophy which didn't went past Hobbes. The two thinkers met years later, but they didn't agree on many things. Although they had similar ideas about the world, they just couldn't get along. 
Hobbes later remarked that Descartes probably should have stuck with geometry. In the year 1640, King Charles I was struggling. He only relied on Parliament when he needed them, and he needed them now having an ongoing war with Scotland. He needed more funds for his war efforts, and only Parliament could grant them to him. Charles relieved the Parliament of their duties after only three weeks, giving it the name the Short Parliament. It was preceded by the Long Parliament, which was not subject to the King anymore and could only be dissolved if the members of Parliament decided so themselves. Two years later, the tensions between Scotland and England, as well as the Royalists and the Parliamentarians in England, led to a civil war. During the Civil War, Hobbes was working as a tutor to Charles, the son of Charles I. The year 1648 marked the end of the Thirty Year War in Europe, but England hasn't been involved in it for 18 years by that point. The Peace Treaty of Westphalia set the groundwork for peaceful coexistence of sovereign nation-states in Europe going forward. The Civil War between Royalists and parliamentarians in England culminated in the year 1651, with the trial, sentencing, and subsequent beheading of Charles I, and sending his son Charles into exile. The king didn't only lose his head, but royalty would lose his stance as the supreme leader of the Church of England over this. During this time, the executive political power lay with the Council of State and later the Parliament of Saints, a nominated assembly. The same year, Thomas Hobbes publicated his most famous work, The Leviathan. The book starts out with focusing on human nature and the subsequent need for a strong and legitimate government in form of a social contract between subject and rulers. The Leviathan is among the most important writings in political philosophy comparable to Machiavelli's Prince. In the year 1653, the humble petition and advice passed Parliament. It was written by the Parliament of Saints, the elected group of people that was ruling the country at the time. And it set the groundworks for constitutional monarchy splitting the power between the king and parliament and establishing a two-chamber system. The English monarchy was restored by parliament in the year 1660 and Charles II, Hobbes' former pupil, and Charles the son taking the throne. Before becoming king, Charles had given a pardon to all acts of treason against the crown that transpired before. In the year 1661, Le Roi Soleil, the Sun King, Louis XIV of France, started his personal reign after the death of his chief minister. He cited the divine right of kings, making him the one and only ruler over France without having the church interfere. He is famous for saying, L'État, c'est moi, the state, that is me. In the year 1666, 
the House of Commons, the lower chamber in the English Parliament, passed a bill against atheism and profanity. And they started an investigation into Thomas Hobbes' work. Hobbes feared what would happen to him and his work due to this investigation, but he was helped by his former pupil and now the king, Charles II. The investigation only led to Hobbes not being allowed to publish any works on the subject of human conduct in England anymore. In the year 1679, Thomas Hobbes died at the age of 91. Among his last publishings were an autobiography as well as translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey into English. It is said that his last words were a great leap into the dark. In the year 1685, King Charles II died of a sudden illness. On his deathbed, he made good on a contractual promise he made to the King of France. He promised to convert to Catholicism at an opportune time, his deathbed being that time. His brother James II would take over the throne, and he was the last Catholic monarch in England. We will continue this series when we talk about the Glorious Revolution, John Locke publishing his book about two treaties about government and a letter concerning tolerance, as well as the establishment of the English Bill of Rights. So stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Nice. Get to see real Eche for Tim. Oops, I restarted it. So cool, I did write down some questions as that was going. I didn't want to interrupt the flow. Welcome back, everyone. That was the intro video for this Hobbes and the Leviathan. My goodness, Hobbes was a very busy individual, it seemed like. Had his hand in a lot of key things. Translating those texts is a pretty nice thing to do. But the concept of the social contract is the real big one. The Leviathan is a concept that we've talked about in World Discussion with Agent Smith quite a few times. And that's specifically related to the wrestling for global military power and whether or not there should be a big boss on the field who can hold everyone else accountable. But I'm sure we're going to dive into more of the specifics of Hobbes' motivations and his perception of it. Thank you for that video. And it's cool, too, to have more of the chat see you. I've seen you before, so... That's no new thing, but give him a follow on his stream. Eche Fatum at Musa. Yeah, so Hobbes lived during really crazy times with a lot of uproar. Um, I think the most important thing to be talking about is why was there so much political instability? And the easiest way to look at it is from an economic standpoint. So the English Civil War that led to the beheading of the king was a war between royalists and parliamentarians. So it was the war between people that supported the king and the people that supported constitutional right and having a parliament that would um, look out for the people. 
And they, the two of them had different economic incentives. We see that whenever parliament gets to rule, they stopped the wars. Whenever we had a ruler in place, they started wars against the Habsburg states. So for the monarchy, their main income source was um, payments by their subjects. So if you're the royalty, you get more money by owning more land, having more people paying tribute to you. Taxes. Taxes, exactly. If you're a commoner, you either work the land or you're, if you're influential as a commoner, you're most likely a merchant. So as a merchant, the biggest thing you want is having stable merchant routes, which are not happening during war times. So for the merchant, there was a big incentive to pay less taxes um, due to less need for taxes because there was less war going on. And if you were part of the royalty, you wanted to wage war because there's an incentive to have more subjects that would pay you taxes going forward. Yeah, we've talked about war being a zero-sum game, but that's the total. If you are the person who is dictating the terms of the war and you win, you can end up with uh, being ahead as a ruler. For the individuals, there's a human cost. People are going to die, so it's not precisely a good deal for them. But if you're a king or queen and you want to roll up someone else's territory and take it, then yeah, you can increase your revenue. And within royalty, there's two different themes going on. One would be following the Magna Carta, being, all right, we need to get along with our people and therefore we're going to listen to parliament and what they have to say. Or there's the fuck it approach and I'm just going to do whatever I want. King Which, exactly. Or the some king, which will have some fallout later on. Yeah, so you said you had some questions? Yes, yeah, so I was getting the vibe that for the English monarchs, there was a wrestle for power between the Magna Carta being the most important thing or the divine right of kings. And some of the rulers tended to lean heavily on one or the other. Maybe you want to respect parliament and the voice of the people. Maybe you want to have as much power as you can. The divine right of kings is very convenient in that God is the only check of your power. And if you're the head of the church, then you're also the person who is most attuned to what God wants, which basically means you can do whatever you want. Yeah. It's also nice in terms of collecting taxes. Like making you the head of the church doesn't only mean that you're the um, voice of God for the people. It also means that you're the head of tax collection on the church side of things, not only on the ruler's side of things. There's a lot of tension during these times, the Middle Ages, all, all of the feudalist times. And to breaking them down to Protestants versus, uh, versus Catholic is one way, but most of all the tensions basically came down to taxes and who you had to pay those taxes to. So I did have a 
a general question that kind of relates to the divine right of kings, but that's a, a specific answer to the question. The broader question is, where does power come from? How does a leader have power? Who is granting them that power if it's not God? So there's three different ways to look at power in the, the form of a ruler. These were established by Weber, I want to say. I'm not quite sure. So the first form we see in the English monarchy is power by birthright, meaning that you were born into power, you were always meant to have power, that power was most likely given to you by God, which is a somewhat dubious claim. But basically, you were born into power, and it's the succession of an ongoing structure, which can be beneficial to society because it's there's no power struggle. Like, everyone knew you're going to be a king someday, so no one is going to challenge you once that happens. The second form would be power by the sake of power. This is the concept we had earlier on. It's basically the strongest that can spear the most people will be king after spearing the king. Mm. Keep what you so, kill. It's like in Chronicles of Riddick when he kills the big bad guy, he ends up being the king just because that's how their power system works. Yeah. Most countries probably don't work that way. I don't think that's a thing anymore. That um, was probably the most effective, the smaller the social group is. Like if you're in a specific tribe, the biggest person who can fight the most is pretty likely to be chief. But as you have states that have many different towns and things in them, it's not really practical to fight off everyone at once. Yeah, so for anyone with ambition to power, what you want to do is become really strong in order to spear whoever is in charge. And as soon as you yourself are in charge, you want to uh, put divine birthright because you don't want to get speared by the next person that got, got stronger than you. Yeah. So you want, you want to transition the system pretty early on. Yeah, even for the strongest person, physically speaking, they would only be able to rule for their prime. And then the young whippersnappers would go take them out. So you take the leadership by the sword and then say, well, it was actually my God-given nature this whole time that I was the leader, <laughs> which means exactly. that my children will rule after me. I got gotcha. you. And yeah, so Hobbes has a really nice passage we're going to read a bit later on in which he talks about that there's, you might be the strongest, which probably means you're not the smartest, or you might be the smartest, which means you're not the strongest. And even if you're the strongest and the smartest, if people band together, they're still stronger than you. Mm -hmm. So no one by himself will be able to reign forever or for their lifetime, unless they have legitimacy. And this is the third system. And it's the system we have nowadays for the most part where we have legitimate rulers meaning that they were either chosen or they got through a process that gives them legitimacy within a nation state and this is where the people agree upon all right i might not like the guy necessarily but he's the ruler for now so i'm gonna stick with what he says mm -hmm. 
There was another question that kind of relates to this. Why do people agree to be subjected? Because as you mentioned, if the people all tried to overpower the leader at once, in many cases they could. Uh, if, if I had to guess, this probably has some relationship with the monopoly on violence where the leader has to have command of the stronger part of the military. Yeah, so why are we giving up our own power in order to live in a society? And this is the core question that Hop was concerned with. And it's a difficult thing to be wrapping your head around. So prior to Hobbes, almost all the thinking in the Western canon was done from a perspective of God doing this or that thing, God establishing the world the way it is. So once you get away from the notion of God um, answering all the unanswerable questions, you have to come up with some kind of system that would give you answers to questions that are not easily answered. And what they did at the time, and this didn't necessarily start with Hobbes, but he's the one most famous for it. Hobbes was looking at the natural state. The natural state being how humans acted and interacted before there was society. And from that knowledge, he developed a system that would logically tell you why you want to live in a society and how you need to order that society for it to function. Is he the guy who said that life uh, before society was cruel, brutish, and short? Exactly. Ah, uh, yeah. So the natural state for Hobbes is a state where everyone is at war with each other. Everyone is looking out for their own self-interest. Seeing the time during which he lived, it makes sense that he would look at the world this way. And it's not the most romantic view of humanity, but I think it, it tells something about the human nature that when um, shit hits the fan, we're almost always looking out for ourselves and not for others. So we're falling back into the state of nature if need be. I would say that there's a, a grain of truth to that. There's a problem that some people have in modern society where they romanticize the hunter-gatherer society as it used to be a, a peaceful, harmonious dynamic where you looked out for your family and your tribe and stayed alive and maybe you wore some sexy loincloths and stuff like that and danced around the fire together and it was a better time and now with government it's worse but there's a book by steven pinker the better angels of our nature the surprising decline in violence and if you look at the violence per capita we are on average much safer as a part of a government in a modern society than we were in a hunter-gatherer society. Even if you rule out the danger from animals in the environment, the danger of neighboring tribes was extremely high. Basically, on any given day, a tribe could roll over to your camp and shoot you with a bow whenever you got out of your tent to go to the bathroom in the morning. And that happens less so now. I would guess that none of the viewers are at risk of that. I hope not. Yeah. 
It doesn't yes. mean we figured everything out yet, but I think the trend has been that it's more peaceful now. Yeah, there's been a lot of social development over the last five, six hundred years, ever since the Reformation, the Enlightenment period. A lot has been happening to human society. And we're still struggling with a lot of issues, but we're doing rather well compared to what has come before that. So we'll probably get to the concept of what the Leviathan is, but my guess at it before you do would be that that is the monopoly on violence and the force of accountability that keeps everyone in line and in check. Um, yeah, so the Leviathan is, if you have the cover of the book, you see the Leviathan is one big dude holding a sword in one hand and a scepter in the other. And he's not just one big dude, he's one big dude made out of a lot of people. So the, the Leviathan doesn't necessarily need to be one person, but it's a social construct, which means that we need to come together in order to have a single rule. A single rule doesn't necessarily mean a single ruler, but a, a unified code of conduct that we all agree upon and that we're willing to give away parts of our freedom in order for this to happen because we see the benefit of coming together and having a stable and regulated social life because it will give us more than just everyone fighting for themselves. It's a rational decision that we're making that we're better off together than we are by ourselves and therefore we're organize all the people into one big Leviathan. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been the major advantage of humanity, the ability for us to work together in extremely large groups, but then also to pass on knowledge from one generation to the next through language and writing. Yes. Those are the huge edges. Um, yeah, so the, the passing on uh, knowledge through writing is something that comes up a lot during this time, because before that literacy rate was around one, maybe 3%, um, depending on the estimates of people. With the Enlightenment, with the book printing, with translations of the Bible into German, English, and all other European languages, there was a huge rise in literacy. Huge rise meaning up to 20%, which is 20 times as much people, depending on the estimate. So you had a lot of people that knew how to read and to write, and this changed the course of history because more people thought they had something to say about what was happening and what was written. More people can express their opinions. Sounds like a dangerous move. Yeah, so in terms of Hobbes' writing style, he studied geometry and what he was writing, he did in a semi-mathematical way. So what he was trying to do in the sense of logic, he was setting up a premise 
and that the conclusion would follow naturally. So it's pure rational thinking where you set out, all right, this is the state of nature. This is why we want to organize society, therefore the Leviathan. So it was a quasi-mathematical work, which is impressive and weird to read. <laughs> yeah, I would guess most people don't write that way. And, and the, somewhat... Sorry. The check of skepticism that I try to remind people of, too, is that even if the author who is establishing links in a chain of logic and they reach some premise at the end, just because they establish links doesn't mean that those links all necessarily hold up under scrutiny. If you don't pause and think about the connections between them or the legitimacy of each one, you can speed through and get to that and think, wow, that was amazing. Must be true. But maybe if one of those links was broken, the whole thing can fall apart. Yeah, there's a, a number of logical errors you can do in an argument. So the a conclusion should always follow naturally from the premises. But if one of the premises is wrong, the conclusion is wrong as well. Uh, one famous example is Louis, the king of France, is bold. So we have a couple of different premises here. So first we set out that Louis is the king of France. Also we set out that Louis is bold. And if both of these two are right, the conclusion is correct, that the king of France is bold. But if the king of France isn't called Louis, or if Louis isn't bold, the conclusion would be false. And with this easy example, you can see how many things could go wrong in a longer line of argument. Seems like lines of argument are actually pretty difficult to establish in a robust way. Um, we'll be talking about long lines of argument and naturally following conclusions when we talk about Kant. He was famous or even infamous for this. It's a real pain to read, but also super interesting. So I'm going to give you an example of such an argument. And here Hobbes talks about the natural condition of mankind. So he talks about the natural state we mentioned before. Um, so this is pretty old English, so it will sound weird for most of you. And we're going to go over it afterwards to give you a sense of what he was saying. Nature have made man so equal in the faculties of body and mind, as though there be found one man sometimes manifestly stronger in body or of quicker mind than another. Yet when all is reckoned together, the difference between man and man is not so considerable as that one man can thereupon claim to himself any benefit to which another may not pretend it, as well as he. For as though the strength of body, the weakest has strength enough to kill the strongest, either by secret machination or by confederacy with others. 
that are in the same danger with himself. What is that in new English? <laughs> <laughs> no, so th this was the, the premise I said at, at the beginning, that we might be strong or we might be smart, but we'll most likely always be either outsmarted or uh, overpowered by others. So no man by himself will be able to hold power just by being strong or, or quick-minded. If you don't have the legitimacy of the people, if people don't want to follow you, they will not. So the, the natural condition of mankind necessitates that we work together, because if we work against each other, we'll die eventually. We'll also die eventually when we don't work together, but probably a lot sooner and probably a lot more violently. Yeah, the format where it's the strongest who survives and rules sounds pretty much identical to the way that Lion's social structure is organized. There's the top lion who leads the pride, and there are other lions who challenge him for power. And uh, basically, he's king as long as he can fight them off. And when he doesn't, he dies. Which is pretty rough. Yeah. Apparently, they haven't thought up the divine right of Lion King yet. <laughs> well, in the Lion King, they have a line of succession, which is... It's immediately not broken then correct <laughs> yeah yeah so we want to have a stable society and i think anyone that lives nowadays can somewhat understand why that's the case at least i hope they do and even though it can be exciting to have your country going to war with another uh, dubious claim in my opinion it's it's important to know why we want a stable society we want a stable society because it the only form that would enable us to or it, it's the only form that gives us freedom in the abstract sense so freedom is a pretty weird concept but basically, freedom means that you, you're able to do whatever you want. And in a stable society, you can do almost anything. But if you have some restrictions, either by not being able to go out or um, by not ha having to work too much to get food, like a lot of different factors that could come in taking away freedom from you because you you're just busy doing other stuff it kind of sounds to me like the concept of freedom at least the one that we're looking for is the one that grants the greatest total freedom to the greatest number of people because sometimes for more people to have freedom uh, you have to sacrifice some people's freedoms in certain capacities so an example that comes to mind is speed limits would be something that is infringing upon the freedom of people who want to drive incredibly fast, but it's benefiting the survival and livelihood of more people in the group, which means that they're free to live longer and do more stuff. So it's one of those, you take a trade 
you sacrifice a little freedom here to gain freedom somewhere else. Yes, that's ex exactly how it works. From a rational standpoint, we see that we might want to do things that others don't agree with, but we take away our own freedom in that way because we're in the social contract. Even though the state has the power to force you to do things, most things should happen out of your free will. So if you don't want to agree with the order that was given, you can disobey a law and this will go well for a certain amount of time until you get caught. And if the laws are stupid and too many people disobey with them, the social contract falls apart. So the social contract needs to be sensible. It needs to be something that people want to buy to because they see to get more benefit from it than to get restricted by it. People don't just want a social contract. They want a good one. Oh, I had a, another question as we were going. Yeah. Which uh, kind of goes into the domain of these powerful kings who could do whatever. What should the limits be on power? Because we talked some about how power can corrupt. But if you have a very benevolent leader, more power can mean they can do more change. But as soon as they have a bad kid who gets the throne, it's fucked. That's an interesting question. I want to say that there's an argument to be made for there to be absolute power for the king. Like if you, as you said, if you have a good ruler, you want them to be able to do almost anything. But this necessitates a good ruler. And this is an issue um, in the US political system as well, where you have the US president having certain rights that are, is not hindered by parliament, while there's certain things he can't decide by himself. And I think the most um, useful thing to look at here is the emperors as they were in, in ancient Rome. So the emperor, like Rome had both a senate and an emperor. And the emperor was mostly used and most useful during war times. When you needed someone strong that would order around the army, that would unify the country in order to fight a common enemy. And as soon as the war was over, the emperor would go back to, to work the fields and would give power back to the Senate. So uh, this is a long way of saying that there's a power balance between what the people want you to do and what the Leviathan, be the king, be the parliament, um, want the people to do. And this balance is really difficult. So do you want to give a king as much power as you can? If you believe in the king, yes. Chances are not everyone will agree on the king being the best king ever. So you want to give the king limited power. You want to give the king as much power as he can get, as long as he doesn't interfere with the wealth, uh, with the interest of the commoner. 
And this is what was established for the first time in the Magna Carta, that there's ought to be some checks and balances on the king. Because if he decides to raise the taxes to an unreasonable amount, which is what led to the need for the Magna Carta, people will be suffering and people will be unhappy, leading to a power struggle. The king will lose his head over it. And as for any society, power struggles are never something you want to happen. Because even though you might want the outcome of the power struggle, what's happening on the way there will lead to a lot of suffering. Struggles carry a cost. Sometimes it's worth it though. Yeah, so for people that would argue for anarchy, for example, either in the UK or anywhere else, I wouldn't at all agree with the concept of anarchy. But basically, if you want this stateless, lawless nation, you would want to get there in a slow manner, more so than just having a break with all the rules. Because what's happened if any political change happens too fast, there'll be a lot of people suffering. So if you just want anarchy for anarchy's sake, that's okay, I guess. But if you want it to happen right now, you'll be killing off a big percentage of the world population. And I hope that's not your goal. There's one thing that touches on this a little bit. Uh, the question of human nature, and that's something that is hotly debated and has been since time immemorial. But basically, if you give humans total freedom, is the outcome a good one? Or are there enough bad apples that it ruins the whole situation for the group? And uh, this is something that I think everyone has their own personal bias on as well, which is partly related to your demeanor. Like, are you someone who just naturally sees the best in people or you're paranoid of other people? You don't trust them very well. And then also the like data you have on how people have treated you in your life. If you had more bad experiences, you got burned by people, betrayed by people, you're not going to be as trusting of others and you're going to see human nature in more of a negative light. So with the concept of anarchy, I think it really doesn't take that many bad apples to cause a ton of chaos. Even if most people keep to themselves and are pretty decent, if you have a big enough chunk, then it's not worth it. Yeah, I think that there's a problem there with the question of human nature. So it's the basically the nature versus nurture argument. I firmly believe that we are not set into stone. As you said, we learn through our um, interactions with others how humanity works, how the world works, and this will inform our decisions going forward. So I think we're a lot more than we think as humans, a product of the society we grow up in. Meaning, and this is an argument Pinker makes as well, as society gets more peaceful, society will get more peaceful because people grew up in a more peaceful society and will act more peaceful going forward. So it, it's a self-reinforcing mechanism that might as well go the other way. So it's the there's 
in my opinion, not as much a human nature, which is either good or bad, but there's human society, which will make you go the, um, towards the light side or the dark side of things. Uh, it's a false dichotomy question. Do you think nature or nurture is more important? They're both extremely important and it's impossible to find out which one is the heavier factor in a large number of cases. So all of us are a product of both. So I'm going to uh, need a quick bio break. Um, but you could, if you want to read the quote I have in the um, philosophy of Hobbes document. Okay. Philosophy of Hobbes. The natural state. Thomas Hobbes. When do we get to Nietzsche? Don't worry, Nietzsche is his favorite philosopher ever. So Nietzsche is probably going to be like a four-part series. Okay, Hobbes on the natural state. The natural state. In such condition, there is no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain. And consequently, no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing, such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, no memes, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger, violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, poopy, and short. No memes, the ultimate sadness. Yeah, so here Hobbes talks about what comes from people living in that natural state. If we don't organize, if we don't work together, There'll be no such thing as industry. There'll be no such thing as instruments of mute, moving. No account of times, no letters, no society. So working together will come with a lot of things that we want. And this is the argument he set out through most of the Leviathan that there's good reason for us to want to give up a part of our power in order to invest it into the Leviathan and have the Leviathan be this really powerful structure that will lead humanity going forward. He makes the Leviathan sound like a pretty good thing. At least a, a necessary thing, maybe a necessary evil. Yeah, I think looking at it as a necessarily evil is... Not the most romantic thing to do, but it's definitely it's a good way to looking at it in terms of you might not agree with everything the Leviathan wants from you, but you, you see why you want the Leviathan and why there's benefit. So you, you agree with the rules that it sets up.
And for hops, there's two different forms of the Leviathan. It's almost always about legitimacy. But the Leviathan doesn't need to be a democratic state as we know it nowadays. It could also be a legitimate ruler. So if there's enough interest invested in a good ruler, he can rule legitimately, even though you might not agree with what he has to say. It's not 100% sure whether or not there was a need for um, Hobbes to argue this way, because arguing against the monarchy, if you're working for the king's son or for the king himself, working with the king's son, maybe not the best idea. And also, trying to write against the church at the time was somewhat of a questionable conquest you could go on. It will most likely end with you burning at the state. So we're not 100% sure when we have these kind of writings, how big they reflect their own thinking in terms of it can a monarch be a legitimate ruler, or if there's just a political need for them to say that. In the example of Hobbes supporting monarchy or not supporting monarchy, um, as I said, he supports a stable structure, whatever that means. If you have a good monarch that will provide society with a stable structure, that's okay with him. On the other hand, he also argued during the interregnum, the time between the beheading of Charles I and the reinstatement of the monarchy in England a couple of years later, um, he argued that the Leviathan was still ongoing because the power went directly from the monarch to the parliament, so there was still this power structure in place that would keep society um, in check. So he, he was not arguing for monarchy, but he was also not arguing against it. He was arguing for having a stable society. Having a bad ruler is better than having no ruler, kind of a stance in a way. Mm-hmm. As long as the ruler brings more stability than the yeah. state of anarchy. Yeah. I'm gonna read another. Um, Quote from the book. Of the office of the sovereign. The office of the sovereign, be the monarch or an assembly, consists in the end of which he was trusted with the sovereign power, namely the procuration of the safety of the people, to which he is obligated by the law of nature, and to render an account thereof to God, the author of that law, and to none but him. But by safety here, is not meant a bare preservation, but also all other contentments of life, which every man by lawful industry without danger or hurt to the commonwealth shall acquire to himself. So the sovereign, meaning the king or an assembly, should work towards the safety of the people. But safety, not only meaning safety in a physical sense, but the sovereign should provide for the means for them to live a good life. And he has to answer to no one but God, which uh, an argument he, we've seen before with Buddha. 
for someone who's interested in the Leviathan, it's not necessarily the book I would recommend most if you want to get into political philosophy. There's a lot of weird talk. He talks about the devil um, through the last part of the book, which is weird, interesting, but it's not what you'd expect from a, a book on political philosophy. But you'd have to realize that Hobbes is coming from a time where the church had a huge amount of power. It was a couple of decades before that Luther um, started to challenging the church and Protestantism to become a thing. But the feud with the church and the feud with how to interpret Christian texts was still ongoing. And Hobbes criticized a lot of our interpretation of the Bible. He criticized a lot about a lot of the understanding we have of human nature as given by the Bible. He challenged a lot of things we thought of as what would happen after our death. So it's a rather lengthy book which goes on into bizarre detail about heaven, hell, um, human nature, different aspects of it. It's interesting to read but as i said it's not something i would necessarily recommend well it does harken back to the past where talk about bible and your interpretation of christianity was more standard fare in academia because it was the most predominant worldview and those who did not have it oftentimes didn't survive very long yeah so I would say for the time, it probably didn't seem out of place for people who are reading it. They're like, oh, yeah, talking about the devil's role in society. Sure, I get you. <laughs> Whereas now you read that and you're like, wait, what? Is he for real? Yeah, he's for real. <laughs> uh, another question was whether or not Hobbes was an anti-theist. And uh, atheist in the way they used it that time doesn't necessarily mean that you didn't believe in God, but also that you just had some nonconformist theories about God. So you could say you believe in God, but if you believe in God in the wrong way, you're still a heretic. Mm -hmm. And Hobbes had some weird beliefs, which he argued for in a nice way. With plenty of geometry and math to back it up, I'm sure. Well, he, he didn't go into numbers for his theory, but yeah, he, he was he had really strong arguments why there's some things we take as gospel and how we might be misinterpreting things from the Bible. Interesting here, Hobbes was studying Greek and Latin, so he had a good understanding of how we translated the Bible, and how we might have gotten things wrong over the cause of translations. That's a very legit process. We did talk about that in some of the previous episodes on Protestant Reformation and so on. That's how the initial writings of texts that ended up in the Bible get changed a little bit every time they're translated, and they also don't fit the same cultural context as when they were originally written. So it's pretty much impossible to preserve them perfectly. It's like you're trying to get the spirit of the idea across in the modern context if you can. Yeah. So 
with his theory about monarchy, his theory about theism, Hobbes wasn't challenging the status quo as much. He was talking about things that were already existing. He was talking about people, the need for people to come together in order to do something, which is something that was already happening. The really revolutionary and challenging part that was in the Leviathan, and this is something that would take quite some time to be adopted in Europe, is he declared it to be okay for people to own land. And that's whoa, just whoa, whoa. crazy talk. Yeah, it is. I mean, we all know that the land either belongs to God, which means the church, or it uh, belongs to the country, which means the king. There's no such thing as private ownership of land. Why would there be? Like, there's, it's not like the land was just there before there were humans. We got here, the land is ours, or gods, the kings, whatever. Yeah, so property rights is a big thing in Hobbes' work. And for Europe to overcome feudalism would take a couple more thinker, a couple more beheadings of um, different royalty. And we'll go through all of that as we go forward in time. And it's, it's some crazy times um, that will come up. So the way Hobbes argued for the Leviathan is a early adoption of legal positivism. And it's a concept that we now know. And in order to explain this, legal positivism doesn't concern itself with the pursuit of happiness, although the pursuit of happiness would be a positive thing. The pursuit of happiness is actually legal negativism, in a sense. It's a bit complicated. So basically, in legal positivism, you don't want to tell people what to do. But it's positive in a sense that you want to avoid all the things that would and prohibit them from doing what they want. So you're not setting the goal for them, but you're taking away all the limiting factors. So it's positive in the outcome and negative in its approach, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's basically trying to carve its way through the legal jungle to give people as much freedom of movement as possible. But it's not like giving them happy meals and ice cream. Maybe some people want ice cream. <laughs> I have heard the term positivist, but more in the context of uh, reality. And someone described me as a positivist, meaning that I believe that we share a reality altogether and that it is possible to discover more truth about that with the postmodern uh, wave of thought. I think there are more people who believe that subjective realities have a lot more weight and that we can't firmly determine like what is actually real to the same extent. Yeah. Yeah. So the use of such terms is, it changes over time. So we're using it for different things. It, it means different things. A good example here would be that Hobbes's theory, um, having to organize a state and having people to submit their power was the earliest adoption of libertarianism. 
So so much for no government and libertarianism. Yeah, the, the, the definitions we have for these terms and what we want to get out of it, it changes a lot over time. So we're, we're pretty bad at adopting a language that is clear in its function. Yeah, so Hobbes' argument about the human nature, how we will always set out for our own benefit if we're not organized, and the consequent need of organization and why we want to submit power towards a sovereign, towards the Leviathan, is something that seems very sensible nowadays. It also seemed sensible at the time. But there's a struggle between what kind of powers you want to give to the Leviathan, what kind of powers you should have, the sovereign should have over the people. Should they be able to declare war? Should they be able to change the law? Um, should they be able to decide their own religion? So there's a lot of different aspects. And these will become more and more important over time with other thinkers. A lot of different aspects of what should the sovereign be able to govern. Um, in terms of religion, there was this concept Ecclesiasticalism. Ecclesiastical. So ecclesiasticism means that you you have religious freedom in the terms that your ruler decides what religion you are. In terms of the struggle between Protestant and Catholics, that meant that once the King of England changed his religion, all his subjects changed their religion with him. And Hobbes argued for the Commonwealth shouldn't have not only a stable religion, but should be able to choose its religion, not on an individual basis, but as a common people, which means you're most likely forcing roughly 49% of people to have a faith they don't agree with. That is really goofy to me, but no. I'm glad that that's not the case in current year, that you are wrestled into believing the majority religion at the time. Yeah, most people went with this because they had no choice and they just believed whatever they wanted to believe privately and gave it a different name and, and pretended they're Catholic, Protestant, whatever. But they, they still held on to their private beliefs. It's similar to something we saw when when there was when Zoroastrianism was adopted by the Muslim faith, or rather the Zoroastrians had to adopt the Muslim faith. They said, Well, it's a nice god you have there, and we don't want to get killed over it. Only problem being that we pray to our God a couple more times than you to do to yours. So is it an issue if we pray a little more to your God now? And they say, okay, that's okay with us. And they still secretly pray to the gods they had before, but they called it a different name. So faith being something very personal, I think people will not change their faith, even though the, the ruler might tell them to, but they'll give it another name in order to look legitimate. People have lots of funny tricks of still getting their way.
pretending to follow the rules. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so the, the conversation that kind of started with Hobbes about how we want to organize as a society and not just on the basis of who rules over us, but kind of on how we have to come together to decide over what, how we want to be ruled is something that was unheard of before, at least during that time period. We had democracy, like the Greeks experimented with democracy, a limited form of it. But this has been forgotten for the, uh, for the most part over medieval times. And there's a divine right of kings. Like there's a king, you're not going to challenge that system because, yeah, you don't want to get speared to death. I think most of history comes down to you don't want to get the spear or don't want to get burned at the stakes but also you want to don't want to pay too much in taxes so it, it's a balance between these two things i think that balance was one that was really impressive for martin luther in the reformation discussion we had like being able to toe the line of raising some concerns but to the point that you don't get killed over it which is really easy to do they were killing all kinds of people left and right for not believing things properly. Like yeah. you said, the correct God worship in the correct way. It, it was a time where you're probably better off not raising your voice and not having any um, thoughts that would challenge the status quo. But those people that did, um, Luther or Hobbes being some good examples, when they did it the right way, it had a huge impact on society going forward. But as we heard about Hobbes' life, he had a really good standing. He had a very good education. He had a lot of friends in high places, so he could afford to go one step further, which is not something most people could do at the time. Yeah, that kind of speaks to the witch hunting aspect, where a lot of times you're taking issue with the people who are already kind of undesirables in society, whereas he is someone who's a very high socioeconomic status, high value member with lots of connections. So he would have to do a lot more to earn being burned at the stake than someone who is a peasant and maybe saying some of the same stuff in the street, potentially. This was also a high times for philosophy, like philosophers, thinkers in general, that were good at what they were doing, they had a really high standing. Um, there's a story about... Um, not 100% true. I think it was Wittgenstein. So a couple of years later, but still within the same Enlightenment period um, mindset of people. So pre-Industrial Revolution. So he had a birthday party. And being a famous and well-known philosopher, um, a lot of people wanted to attend, a lot of the rich and famous people at the time. So it happened to be that the king had his birthday around the same time, and he was super upset that the philosopher had more attendees to his party and got more publicity for it. So yeah, this used to be the time where thinkers were really people 
believed in the notion of rationality and of people thinking outside of the box and having an impact with that, more so than someone that got the birthright or divine right to sit on the throne. Yeah, there has been an ebb and flow for intellectual periods and anti-intellectual periods. And it, it seems like present day we're leaning a little bit less toward the intellectual, more toward the like strengthen your convictions. That was the contrasting point. If the crest of the wave is the emphasis on reason and skepticism and the trough is the focus on being rooted in your convictions, uh, this time period with Hobbes, you're saying was a reason and skepticism one where they valued the people who are thinking in new ways and coming up with ideas. Yeah. Which increased his chances of survival. It did. As well as having um, friends in the right places, which is super important. It's still important nowadays, but you, the, the chances are you're not losing your head over it. But I think a good example would be uh, in journalism in a country that is more restrictive on journalists. So if you happen to have friends in high places, you could get away with doing a lot more things than someone that doesn't have that opportunity or doesn't have those friends. And they probably get thrown into jail for saying half the troubling things you'd say. Yeah, so friends is important. Confucius already established that. But it got to a different degree of importance as the power structure changed in the world. I think a, a good um, comparison nowadays would be being friends with Twitch staff, which could uh, make it so you can get away with a bit more than other streamers they don't get along with. Mm. There's, there's always this personal element to things. So... If you're friends with someone, you just let things slide you wouldn't otherwise. And it's, I'm not saying this is a bad thing necessarily. It has some problematic things, but then again, we, we do live in this social construct where you, you want to be a bit more lenient towards your friends than you would be towards others. Mm -hmm. Not perfectly correct, but very natural. Yeah. Yeah, so Hobbes wrote a bunch of other things as well, which are interesting to be looking at. I think it's not as important to understand his thinking. So the, the core of his message was, firstly, where do we come from as people, being the, the natural law? And this is something that will be argued by many other thinkers over time, uh, disagreeing on this brutish nature of people and whether or not we're a bit more we're wired to be, be social from the get-go. And the second thing being the need for a society that agrees upon things out of this natural state. And this is something that, although it has been challenged, is something that we pretty much got into the zeitgeist, the, the thinking and post-enlightenment thinking. So we're now at a point where we kind of see, all right, we, we probably ought to work together. Which interestingly wasn't always the case. Wait, so it wasn't always the case that people strove to work together? Nah, um, maybe that's putting it wrongly. So 
the the argument he was making was to have a more overarching Leviathan. So he was thinking along the lines of the Commonwealth at the time. So the combination of Scotland, Ireland, England, and Wales. Um, more so than having different in-group kind of fights. And this is the, the development he was describing is from having like widening your social group and coming together to have a rule set as society that would encompass the largest social group possible. Mm -hmm. So it, it implies international lawmaking, for example, where we, we as humanity agree on what we want to be right or wrong, which, yeah, ethics, we've talked about this being a rather difficult thing to do. Yeah, so it's kind of like saying as the size of the social group increases, the size of the government should also be increasing. Don't tell libertarians I said that. <laughs> well, to be fair, and to, uh, along the lines of how Hobbes would argue, if all of humanity could um, decide on one ruler and just letting him or her do whatever they want, as long as it would provide social stability, it'd be a good thing. So mm -hmm. government doesn't need to be big. It's just that we need to agree upon it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's about as much as I have to say about Thomas Hobbes and the Leviathan. We see that mankind might have probably have been brutish before they formed society. Maybe not, though. And Hobbes really described the way why we should form a society, what's the benefits, what, um, what we're giving up in order to have a society, but how we should come together with as many people as possible to form a coherent and stable society and what's to be gained from that. Mm -hmm. And as we go forward, we'll have uh, John Locke next, who plays with this line of argumentation. And I'll probably do another video and we'll have still a lot of instability in England as well as the yes rest of Europe, a lot of thinkers that will challenge Hobbes or will challenge different notions of the rule of kings, the rule of the church um, at the time, and why they don't want to pay taxes, because no one wants to pay taxes, apparently. No, but they do want to drive their horse carriage on the road. It's tricky. I feel a mixture of feelings when I'm doing taxes because I have the sense of duty that it's something that has to happen, but then also the awareness that you don't really get to decide all the places the money is going. That's a decision that is made for you. So you could say that's a freedom that you give up because you think it's worth it. There's also the risk of punishment too. They will find you if you don't pay them. <laughs> I would find it really interesting if you would get a form with your tax form where you can say, all right, I'd like to see, and this wouldn't necessarily be something um, that 
is law, but rather I'd like to see my money going this place. So you can spend your money more for military or you can spend your money more for education. And having this kind of statistical um, analysis of what people want to have their money spent on could provide a, a interesting insight for the government on what they ought to spend more money on and, or what they ought to spend less money on. So it, it'd be an interesting poll on the public interest on where the tax money goes. And... I'd be fairly interested in what I will agree. come out of I that. I agree. I thought about that, I think, in the first years when I was paying taxes. And in the United States, we have a massive military budget. And a lot of people, they don't really like that, but there's also nothing they can do about it. And there are other people who think that it's cool and or necessary for the United States to have a large military presence as the uh, world police, the world's leviathan, that like military force that makes other whippersnappers less likely to try to pull something and invade their neighbor. At least that's the the theory there. But yeah, this is a really good one. I like that all of these are linked chronologically. It's pretty cool because the lead up is understood and explained. We went over the Protestant Reformation in two episodes. Next time we'll be doing John Locke. Yep. Right. Sounds pretty good. I like the video format too. You gave us a pretty thorough and detailed historical overview of what happened, and then we got into the questions after. I'm not sure how much time that takes for you to do, but uh, this um, is some new content. We're not we're not doing the same old StarCraft as usual. We're exploring, experimenting, but I'm always having a good time with it. Thanks for coming on, dude. Yeah, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Um, so for me, making the video, it, it's arguably more time consuming than preparing just the talking points, but it makes it easier for me because as we've seen, when I have to go through the bullet points um, on our discussion, it's a lot more difficult than just um, giving you the rough outlines on a video and then we can talk about um, different things because it's very easy to kind of lose my train of thought when we go into one specific thing and then I'm like, all right, where were we? And what what did I want to say? So if I, if I prepare a video like that, I can talk about all the important things and then we can go into detail afterwards. So um, I'm looking forward to, to do more of these. Sweet. And I did see a question in the chat about Nietzsche. Don't worry, we're going to have a 19 episode chronological series of all of Nietzsche's ideas. <laughs> that is our resident philosopher's favorite philosopher. So there won't be a shortage of content. I think we can guarantee to the community that that is a philosopher who will not be skipped. Yeah, unless I die before we get there, we'll be talking in length about Nietzsche's philosophy. Nice. Thank you very much for your time, my friend. Hope you have an awesome rest of your day. Thank you, chat, for participating and hanging out during this time and asking your questions. We will see you on the next episode of Philosopher Clock with Eche for Doom. Mm -hmm.